Today's scripture reading is Acts 15, 1 to 21. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching, to, teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissensions and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to the Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through the Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in details the conversation of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of the Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together and considered this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he had no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Uh, but we believe that we will be saved through the uh, grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, Jesus replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from the, from the people of his, for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it, as, as it is written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by na my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my ju judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Far from ancient generations, Moses ha has had in every city those who proclaimed him, for he is read, read, read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Eric. I am the pastor here at the Bridge Church. It's great to be here with you today. If you are new at the bridge, this year we have been going through the story of the Bible together as a church. We started in the book of Genesis. We went through the entire Old Testament over the course of several months. And we saw that, that God created the world. He created humanity in the world to have a relationship with him. And that humanity has cut ourselves off from that relationship with God. That humanity basically looked at the God who made us, who gave us life, who we owed all of our allegiance to, and said, don't tell me how to live my life. 
I can do a better job leading my own life than you can. So don't tell me what to do. Stay out of it. When we talk about sin as Christians, that's what we're talking about. This attitude of humanity that says, God, leave me alone. I know better than you do how to live my life. So let me do it. And then we, in doing that, cut ourselves off from a relationship with God that we were created to have. The relationship that was supposed to be the source of all the life and the joy and and the goodness in our lives, we cut ourselves off from that. And as we looked through the Old Testament, what we saw is that every possible human solution to this problem of being cut off from God falls short. There is nothing humanity can do in our own power to get back to God. And it's just painful detail throughout the Old Testament of again and again and again, seeing how literally anything humanity can try through our own power to get back to God falls short. And so the Old Testament, all the way along, it's been building and pointing to the fact that in order for our problem to be fixed, we need God to step in and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And a few weeks ago, we finally reached the New Testament and we saw that God in Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In Jesus, God took on human flesh and blood and became one of us. He stepped into the creation that he had made to live life as a human being. And he did it to rescue us. The Bible tells us that that Jesus was killed Even though he had done nothing wrong, he was killed. He was cut off from God in our place so that we can have a restored relationship with God, that the the price of justice for our rebellion against God is paid. We can be set free. We can now once again know God and have a relationship with him. And so Jesus, he died, he rose again. And then the Bible tells us he ascended back into heaven, which is where he is now ruling and reigning over the universe. And last week, we looked at this story of a day called Pentecost, and we saw that the story of God and his work in the world, it's still continuing, and that God has a role for us in that story today. God sent the Holy Spirit, God who lives inside of us, to come and equip us for the work that God has for us to do, because we can't do it on our own. God himself comes and lives inside us so that we can follow him the way that he wants us to. And the story continues. After Pentecost, the the message about Jesus begins to spread rapidly. Thousands of people are becoming Christians in the city of Jerusalem. And it reaches the point where the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman government officials start to realize that there's something new happening here. And they feel threatened by it because it's expanding so fast and they don't like it. They decide we need to do something to stop this. So they start persecuting the church, doing things like arresting people and killing them for no other reason than the fact that they're Christians. This, this new movement is so threatening that, that to the leaders who are established in government and religion. They, they feel so threatened by it. They say the best way to handle it is just let everyone know if you join these people, you will die. And a lot of the Christians who are living in Jerusalem at this time see what's happening, they get scared. And rather than just saying, we're not gonna be Christians anymore, they say, we're getting out of Jerusalem. They leave the city, they go find somewhere else to live. And as they go to these new places, they start telling even more new people about Jesus. See, the the religious leaders and the government officials tried to stop Christianity 
but actually all they did is spread it all over the world. And so the, the persecution spreads the church all across the world. And at least at first, these people who are going out from Jerusalem, they're all Jewish. And as they go to new places and tell new people about Jesus, they're telling it only to other Jews. Until one day, God appears to the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, in a vision. And he tells him, Peter, I want you to go share about Jesus with this man named Cornelius, who is not Jewish at all. And Peter obeys God. He goes to Cornelius' house. He tells them about Jesus. They believe they received the Holy Spirit, just like the original followers of Jesus did. And it's now clear that this Jesus movement is not just restricted to Jewish people. It's open to everyone. So a couple chapters go by. This man named Paul starts going out to tell people in cities all around the world this good news about Jesus, how he came to rescue us, how he came to give us access to God that we couldn't get ourselves. And the Jewish people in these various cities say, leave us alone. Don't tell us this. We don't want to listen. And Paul says, fine, I'll go tell everyone else in the city. And the non-Jews, the Gentiles, start believing in Jesus, left, right, and center. And it's amazing. God's doing amazing work with these people who used to be outsiders from his people. And Paul and his fellow workers, they're so excited because God is letting this message about Jesus spread all over the world to all sorts of different types of people. And it's awesome. And so Paul comes back to the church he was sent from, and he starts telling them how amazing this work is that God's been doing. And everyone's super excited until this group of Jewish Christians comes in and says that these new non-Jewish Christians, if they really want to be Christians, they need to get circumcised and they need to follow the Old Testament law. All these commandments that the Jewish people have had to follow over the years about things like what type of clothes you can wear, what type of food you can eat, who you can and can't marry, all these things and they start having this debate and discussion about what do these non-Jewish people need to do in order to really, truly be Christians. And Paul realizes pretty quickly, this is not just an academic question. This is, this is actually a question where the gospel, this good news about Jesus that he's been spreading around the world, that itself is at stake. If you get this question wrong, it is a life or death question that will impact people's eternities. We'll look in just a minute at how that's the case. But it's absolutely essential that the church get this question right. So Paul decides that he's going to go from his sending church to Jerusalem, which is where the apostles, Jesus, the 12 guys Jesus left in charge of the church when he left, they are stationed in Jerusalem. And Paul's going to take the question there so that they can have an official decision that applies to the whole church all the way around the world. And today's passage is the story of that meeting in Jerusalem and the decision they made. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And what we're going to see is that the gospel sets us free so we can love others. We're going to have two points, freed by Christ, bound by Christ. Let's pray and then we'll dig in and look at the passage. Father, we thank you for the amazing news that what we can't do for ourselves, you do for us that when we were too far from you to ever get back to you on our own power, that you sent Jesus to rescue us freely. And God, I pray that that amazing good news of his salvation that he offers us would be something that grips our hearts today and transforms us and draws us closer to you. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. So first up, freed by Christ. As I mentioned, the big question in this passage is do Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, do they need to get circumcised to become Christians? And in case you don't know what circumcision is, it's on a man's penis, there's a flap of skin called the foreskin. Circumcision is cutting that off. So with the Jewish people, when their sons were eight days old, every Jewish boy needed to be circumcised at eight days old. And that was one of the marks of what it meant to be a Jewish person. And you, you may be wondering, why is this a big deal? Why does it matter whether Christian men have foreskins attached or removed? You know, this discussion might feel like a bit of a waste of time to you. It, it might feel like, why are we talking about this? But what we see in today's passage at the, is that this discussion it's a huge deal because the surface level, this conversation, it's about foreskins. But actually at the heart, underneath the surface, this conversation is about something so much bigger and so much more important than just foreskins. The core question of this passage, the, the question underneath the question is what does it take to become a Christian? What does it take for someone, for you, for me to become a Christian? Does Jesus alone save us or do we have to do something else on top of what Jesus does to supplement and top up his work so that we can truly know God and have a relationship with him? Like I said, the gospel, this good news about Jesus, that itself is at stake in this question. If you get this question wrong, you are messing with people's eternity. I mean, think about it. If, if circumcision is actually essential in order to become a Christian, and you tell people it's not, you're gonna be telling lots and lots of people that they're Christians when they're actually not. You're gonna give people false assurance, false hope that they're on good terms with God when actually they're not. And on the flip side, if you don't need to be circumcised to become a Christian, but you start telling everyone they do, from what I hear, being circumcised as an adult man is killer painful. That would be a major deterrent from a lot of people becoming Christians. And so if you're telling them, you need to get this little surgery done to become a Christian, a lot of people are like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I'd rather just keep living my life the way that I wanna keep living it. And so if you're Paul, you're at the church, you have people coming and saying, these non-Jewish people need to get circumcised to become Christians. That's a big deal. This is a question you absolutely have to get right. And so as the question comes up in this church in Antioch, which is a city a little bit north of Israel, it's where Paul's sending church was when he went out on this missionary journey. Paul decides, I'm going to take a trip south, head to Jerusalem, this headquarters where the apostles are all stationed right now, and have a conversation with them. Because Jesus appointed the apostles to be the leaders of the church after he left. And he, he basically told them, like, if questions come up, you guys make that deciding decision so that the church knows what it means to properly follow me. Now, if you're wondering for us today, we have the New Testament is basically the writings of those apostles so we can know the things that they said so that we can keep following Jesus properly. But bringing this question to the apostles means that no matter what decision gets made, the entire church all the way across the world is gonna be unified on it because it's made under the authority of the leaders that Jesus left in charge. So Paul comes to Jerusalem and he brings up this question about whether circumcision is necessary for salvation and the apostles chat about it. 
they discuss it, and ultimately they decide the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised in order to become Christians. Can we get an amen? (laughs) Now, there are two big arguments that sway this decision in this direction. First, Peter shares the story of how God initially called him to go to this man, Cornelius. And Peter's like, hey guys, look, it wasn't my idea. It wasn't my plan. God himself spoke to me and said, I want you to go tell these non-Jewish people about me. And so when I went, I told them and they believed and God sent them the Holy Spirit just for them believing nothing extra was required. God treated them just like he treated us without them having to do any special operations, without them having to do anything special to make themselves more Jewish. It was just believing and God sent the Holy Spirit. And so if God sends the Holy Spirit to them without worrying about whether they're circumcised, who are we to put an extra barrier in their way of believing? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that they realize the Old Testament itself says that God is going to call the Gentiles to follow him. One of the most classic barriers between the Jewish people and the Gentiles was the fact that the Jewish people were circumcised and many, most Gentiles were not. And, you know, at first, all of the Christians were Jewish. So people actually at first started to think of Christianity, not as its own separate thing, but sort of as a subgroup within Judaism. And now that Gentiles were becoming Christians, the question is, for them to be Christians, do they also have to be Jewish? Is Christianity a subgroup within Judaism so that someone joining from the outside has to become not only a Christian, but also Jewish? Or is Christianity this new thing that's set apart from the Jews and the Gentiles to be a new mixed group that is the family of God? And by looking at the Old Testament, the apostles realize God's plan has always, always from the beginning, been to include Gentiles in his people as Gentiles, not as converts who become Jewish so that they can then be his people, but as Gentiles. And it's pretty incredible, right? Like the apostles, Jesus himself said to them, hey, you guys are the ones who are in charge when I leave. If you make decisions, it's binding on the church. They could have just stood up and said, we have this authority, Jesus gave it to us, so this is what we're doing. But they didn't do that. They looked back and they said, what does the Bible itself say? We're gonna let that shape and guide all our decisions. If that was true for them who had hand-given authority from Jesus to make decisions on his behalf, how much more true does that need to be of us that we are looking to God's word for guidance on the major decisions that we make in life? And so by looking at the Old Testament, by seeing what the Old Testament said, they decided the Gentiles do not need to become Jewish to become Christians. They do not need to start following the Old Testament law about what you can and can't eat, what types of clothes you can wear, getting circumcised. None of that is necessary in order for them to become Christians. The Gentiles are saved by faith alone, just like the Jewish people are. And you may be here thinking, you know, that's great, but what does that have to do with our lives today? Well, one really practical thing that's probably never crossed most of our minds, but that is actually practical. If you are a Christian, you actually don't, if you have sons, you don't need to get them circumcised in order for them to become Christians when they grow up, which is helpful to know, right? Especially since the Hong Kong public hospital system doesn't include that in their services. So you'd have to pay a bunch extra to get that done. As Christians, we have freedom on that matter because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not 
by faith plus works. So if you're a parent, you have sons, you want to get them circumcised, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. But your son's eternal status or your own eternal status, if you're a man before God, doesn't depend on whether or not you are circumcised, which I think is good news. But again, I realize that discussion about circumcision probably feels outdated to us today. Like I'm guessing the bulk of the people in this room have not spent huge amounts of time in our lives stressing about like, oh no, is whether or not my foreskin is attached going to make a difference in whether or not God lets me into heaven, right? Like I'm guessing that most of us haven't spent huge amounts of time thinking through that question. And like on one level, that's actually evidence of the fact that the decision made here in this meeting was really, really effective. It worked itself into the heartbeat and DNA of the church. So we, by this point, just take these things for granted. We don't stop and think about these things because the decision has already been made. But the attitude that this group had when they started to say, these Gentile men need to be circumcised in order to become Christians, that's an attitude that very, very much still impacts the church on so many levels today. And here's what I mean. The people saying the Gentiles need to get circumcised in order to become Christians, really what they were saying is Jesus alone is not enough to save you. That's what they were saying. Jesus alone is not enough to save you. Salvation comes from Jesus plus something else. Now, I'm going to put some fill-in-the-blank things on the screen. I want you to think about how often do these types of thoughts come into your head, and how do you fill in these blanks? If only I could change blank in my life, then God will really love me. If only I can accomplish blank for God, then he'll really accept me. I know I'm a Christian, but I can't allow myself to enjoy the benefits of my faith until I fix fill-in-the-blank problem in my life. Have you ever had these thoughts or feelings or others like them? If so, how do you fill in the blanks? What is the thing or things that you feel like you need to do to really make it enough? And by the way, if you do have these thoughts, I'm not condemning you. I, I have them too, right? Like, that so often I see issues and problems in my life and I just feel like, okay, Eric, once you get this fixed, once you get this sorted out, God will finally be really happy with you. But this passage and this discussion that we're looking at today, if you have these narratives in your head and in your heart, this passage and this discussion, it's written for you and for me. Because what are we doing when we have these thoughts? We're saying that salvation and its benefits come from Jesus plus something else. What Jesus did is great, but I need to supplement that through my effort, my good works, my accomplishments, my whatever, in order for it to really be enough, because Jesus alone is not enough. But that's not true. Salvation comes from Jesus alone, Jesus plus nothing. Our works, our efforts contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation. And so if you have those narratives in your head right now, or just in general in life, that say you need to do something to add to Jesus' work in order for God to really be happy with you. Recognize right now, those are lies. Those are lies sent from the enemy to distract you, to keep you from experiencing the salvation that is truly yours in Jesus. Because Jesus alone is enough to save. Maybe we can all say that together just to remind ourselves of it. All right, on the count of three, we're going to say Jesus alone is enough to save. Ready? One, two, three. Jesus alone is enough to save. Jesus sets us free from that tyranny of having to try to save ourselves. 
But before we get too carried away celebrating this freedom, we have to deal with the last two verses of this passage, because at least at first glance, they appear to be really, really dampening the mood here, okay? So that's our second point today, bound by Christ. When we get to verse 20, a man named James is speaking. Now, James, he was the brother of Jesus, like biologically, same mom, obviously different dad, because Jesus had God as his dad. James had Joseph as his dad. But James has now become an apostle. He's one of the core leaders in the church. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he's the one who just spoke up and gave this amazing verdict that Gentiles are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, just like the Jewish people are. That we don't have to do anything to add to or supplement the work of Jesus because we're completely, totally saved by Jesus and by Jesus alone. And so James, he gives this verdict, gives this decision, and he says, all right, now let's write a letter to the Gentiles to tell them this good news, that they're saved by Jesus and Jesus alone. And in that letter, here's what we're going to tell them to do. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Stay away from sexual immorality. Don't eat food that has been strangled and don't eat blood. Now, what the heck? right? Like that's kind of a bunch of things that they're telling the Gentiles to do or not to do right after they said, you don't have to do anything at all because it's all Jesus that saves you. Why? Why would they say you're free? You don't have to do anything. And oh, by the way, here's a bunch of things to do. And realize the things they tell them to do, they're not one-off things like circumcision. All of them are things you have to be constantly aware of on a day-to-day-to-day basis. I mean, again, from what I hear, Circumcision as an adult is killer painful, but at least with that, you do it once, you're done. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You have like a week or two of being super, super sore and in pain, and then the rest of your life it's taken care of. These things are things that every single day you have to stay constantly aware of them. You have to constantly look out for like, how was my meat killed? Did you drain all the blood properly before you served it to me? Like that takes a lot of work. And why would James make this pronouncement that the Gentiles, they don't need to do anything other than trust in Jesus to be saved. And oh, by the way, here's a bunch of rules for you to follow. Especially, especially since the rest of the New Testament tells us that actually three of the four things he tells them to do here aren't even sinful. Like, did you realize that? In 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, he says it twice because it's that significant and important. Paul says that it's not actually sinful to eat food that is offered to an idol. He says, it's totally within the rights of a Christian to go up to Big Buddha and eat food in the restaurant there and enjoy it and be thankful to God for it. And you're not doing anything wrong if you do that. The only way it's sinful for you to do that is if in your heart, you believe you're doing something wrong as you do it. But if you don't, then there's absolutely nothing wrong with you doing that. It's not sinful. But right here, James says, all Christians, Jewish Gentiles, don't do it. And then in the other two of the things with food is don't eat things that are strangled, don't eat things that have blood in them. But if you look at Mark chapter seven, Jesus declares all foods clean, which means that the Jewish restrictions on eating food that was strangled, on eating food that had blood in it, don't apply anymore for Christians. And it's totally within the rights of Christians to eat food that is strangled, 
food with, its, with blood in it. So if you come from a culture where blood sausage is a thing or black pudding is a delicacy, you as a Christian are allowed to eat that. It is not sinful. And yet here, James makes this blanket ruling, no, none of that. And the fourth thing James bans is sexual immorality, which we see all over the place in the New Testament. That actually is sinful. The Bible is very clear that participating in sexual acts outside the context of marriage is sinful. And James probably includes it here because that was such a huge part of their culture back then um, that people all over the place would have been expected to engage in, that it's just helpful to have these reminders. But really, out of the four things he mentions here for Gentile Christians not to do, this is the only one that he bans that's actually sinful in and of itself. So why? Why command the Gentiles to do these four things, especially when three of them aren't sinful, right after saying, you don't have to add anything to Jesus' work in order to become Christian? And the reason is because salvation is a free gift, but it changes us. Salvation is a free gift, but it changes us. As Christians, the Bible tells us God gives us salvation freely. But his goal in giving us that salvation freely is not that we would then be able to stand up for ourselves and fight for the right to uphold our freedoms. No. Paul tells us in Galatians 5.13, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh or for seeking your own desires, but through love serve one another. God gives us freedom. He saves us freely so we can lay down our rights for the sake of others. God saves us freely so we can lay down our rights for the sake of others. It's not that following this list of commands here makes the Gentiles Christians. We've already established Jesus alone saves them. The issue here is that the church is now this mixed group. There are Jewish people in it. There are Gentile people in it, and they're living near with one another and interacting with one another and doing things together. They're eating together. And for the Gentiles, these things, eating blood, eating food sacrificed to idols makes no difference. But for the Jewish Christians with their cultural backgrounds, they can't help but see these things as sinful. And if they see the Gentile Christians doing these things, that could lead them to start doing it themselves. And although these actions aren't sinful in themselves, the Jewish Christians can't help but see them as sinful. And so by doing them, they would be sinning. And James is calling the Gentile Christians to lay down their rights, to lay down their freedoms in order to love their Jewish brothers and sisters. By making sacrifices in their own lives, even giving up things that aren't morally wrong in and of themselves, these Gentile Christians are going to help the Jewish Christians to be able to follow Jesus more wholeheartedly. And it may also open up doors for Jewish non-believers to see and believe in Jesus as well. See, trusting in Jesus, it changes the way we look at the world. Typically in the world, when we're trying to make a decision, the, the big determining factor is, is this right or is it wrong? And really, when, when you're using that criteria for making decisions, you can justify a lot of decisions as being right, or at least not wrong. Because really, when, when you want to do something and your criteria is right or wrong, it doesn't need to be right for you to feel good about doing it. It just needs to be not wrong, right? Which there's a lot of space that you can justify not wrong to yourself. And really looking at this list that James gives here, most of these things are not wrong in and of themselves. It would be totally normal for the Gentile Christians to not only 
feel like they're not wrong, but actually like they're so far outside the radar of what most people who don't come from that Jewish background look at life through. They wouldn't even think twice about whether this is something they should do, right? Like how many of you have had someone serve you a blood pudding in your life? You don't have to put up hands, but just think about it. Like how many of you have had someone serve you a blood sausage and be like, oh man, my religion doesn't allow me to eat that. Like that's, that's not the way you function if you haven't grown up in that culture. We don't even think twice about it. But Jesus, when he saves us, he calls for us to change the way that we see the world. On the way to the cross, Jesus didn't, didn't ask the question, is it morally right or wrong for me to go to the cross? Right? Like it was morally wrong for those people taking him to the cross to, to bring him there. It was morally wrong for Jesus to be executed for a crime he didn't commit. Jesus would have been totally within his rights to just speak a word and strike everyone dead who was involved in killing him. Like he would have been within his rights to do that. It would not have been wrong for him to do that. But Jesus saw the world a different way. His motivating question was not, is this right or is this wrong? It was, how can I best love the people around me? How can I best love the people around me? And because that was his motivating question, it led him to lay down his rights, to lay down what he deserved, to lay down what he was entitled to in order to love and serve others. And when Jesus saves us, he calls us to do the same thing, to begin seeing the world through this new lens. Jesus gives us freedom. If you're a Christian, Jesus gives us freedom, but he doesn't give us that freedom so we can go live comfortable lives of luxury, so we can use our freedom to, to just make ourselves comfortable. He gives us freedom so that we have the ability to love and serve and sacrifice for others. And so the apostles here, they're calling for the Gentile Christians to do the same thing. It's not that it's morally wrong to eat food sacrificed to idols or to eat blood or to eat strangled animals. You have the freedom as a Christian to do these things. Doing them or not doing them does not determine whether you're a Christian because Jesus alone saves you. But once you're a Christian, Jesus changes the questions you ask. As a Christian, it's not a sin is not a strong enough argument to justify doing stuff anymore. As a Christian, it's not a sin is not a strong enough argument to justify doing things anymore. The question that now needs to drive us is how can I best love the people around me? How can I lay down my rights and freedoms so I don't put up barriers to belief for the people around me? How can I lay down the right, my rights and freedoms for the sake of other Christians around me so that I don't cause them to sin and stumble and turn away from God? How can I lay down my rights and freedoms for the sake of the non-Christians around me so that I can show them the beauty of following Jesus? It's really interesting. In the next chapter in Acts 16, Paul goes on another missionary journey to tell all the churches this good news that you don't have to be circumcised to become a Christian and to deliver this letter all around the world. And this guy named Timothy comes and says, I wanna join your team. I wanna travel with you, I wanna go with you. And the first thing Paul does is he says, yeah, you can join me, but if you wanna be part of my team, you gotta get circumcised. Which you're kinda of like, wait, didn't we just fight like one chapter ago for the right to not have to do that, right? Like, why are you doing this? It's not that Paul's forgotten this decision that he just fought for a chapter before, but Paul realizes Timothy being uncircumcised could be a barrier for some of the people he's trying to reach to be able to listen to and believe the gospel. And so he says, Timothy, you have the right to stay uncircumcised, but if you want to come with me and work with me, you have to lay down that right in order to love and serve others. 
which was a huge ask. But that's what the Christian life is about, laying down our rights, making sacrifices ourselves in order to love and serve others. And I realize our hearts, like they're naturally hardwired to resist this way of living, right? Like we want the whole world to bend to our desires. We want everything to go exactly the way that we feel we deserve for it to go. And it's difficult because especially if we're, if we're still looking to ourselves as the source of our salvation, or at least to supplement the work of Jesus, trying to live this way is constantly going to show us how short we fall. Trying to live in a way where we lay down our rights for others as a way of earning God's approval of us, it's going to crush us. But it's only when we look to Jesus, when we understand that he saves us completely as a gift, completely freely. When we see that he did this for us, he laid down his rights and his freedoms for the sake of loving us on a far greater scale than he will ever ask us to do for others. That's what's going to transform our hearts to make us want to actually live this way. And again, I realize in our world, three of these four behaviors that they ban here probably won't be the main behaviors that people in our world are concerned about, right? Like pretty much every scholar believes that these three commands were intended to be temporary during a transition time, that they don't apply to Christians today. So if you, again, if you come from a culture where they love their blood sausage or black pudding, like enjoy that. You don't have to give that up for the sake of loving your neighbors, unless you're trying to reach some really specific like subgroups within Hong Kong, then maybe you need to do that. But generally that's not an issue in our world today. But the principle behind it of Christians using our freedom in Christ to restrict ourselves, to lay down our rights, to love and serve others, that still holds true today. So what could that look like for us? Just a couple ideas. I'm sure you can think of things within your life. One, it could mean like that if you have a friend who struggles with alcoholism, you don't drink in their presence. You don't invite them to come hang out at the pub. It could mean that if you have friends who converted to Christianity from a Buddhist background, you you don't invite them to come eat a meal with you up at Big Buddha because they might still see that as an act of worship to Buddha. And it could create a stumbling block for them that, that makes it really difficult for them to reconcile how you can do this and still be a Christian. Yes, as a Christian, you have the right to drink alcohol, to eat at Big Buddha, to go to the bar, the bar whatever. But out of love, if doing those things is gonna cause someone else to stumble or to sin or to have trouble following Jesus properly, we lay down our rights in order to love others. I'll, I'll just share one quick example from my life of what this has looked like. And as a heads up, I'm not trying to make any type of political statement by sharing this. I realize it could be construed that way. That's not my goal at all. And my goal is simply to just help us think through what this looks like for us. So this principle of laying down my rights laying down my freedoms to serve others, that was one of the big motivating forces that led me to get the COVID vaccine. You know, I'm, I'm not, again, not saying it's a morally right choice. You have to do this to be a good Christian. None of that stuff. I'm just trying to share what this process looks like in my life. And I'm pretty young. I'm pretty healthy. I'm not a massive risk of dying if I catch COVID while I'm unvaccinated. Um, in Hong Kong, there's not a huge risk of me being exposed to the virus in the first place. Um, and those for a lot of people, I think are motivators that keep them from getting the vaccine. On top of that, I hate needles. You may not know this about me. I hate needles. They make me pass out. Um, and so when I went to get the COVID vaccine, I know it's embarrassing as a grown man, but it's true. I'm just being real here. 
I hate needles. When I went to get the vaccine, they had to pull out a special bed for me and have me lay down on it. And it wasn't just like you lay down, you get the shot and then you get up and you're fine. No, like they had me stay lying down for 15 minutes as people from the neighborhood just file by. And it's tongue chung. So you're not like surrounded by random strangers that you're never gonna see again. It's like, I know these people. This is embarrassing. This is uncomfortable. I did not like that experience. Again, very strong motivation to not get the vaccine for me. And then I also wasn't looking forward to the vaccine side effects because I'd heard about how terrible those could be. But as I thought about it and prayed about it, I realized by getting this vaccine, I'm cutting the chances that I'm accidentally going to infect someone else with this virus. And because Jesus laid down his rights to sacrificially love me, I decided I'm going to lay down my right to opt out of this vaccine so that I can sacrificially love the people around me. And that may seem like a small thing to you. That may seem like a a stupid way of applying it to you. I don't know. Uh, Again, I'm not saying you need to now go get the vaccine if you haven't gotten it yet. I'm not saying you're a bad Christian if you haven't done it. I'm just saying that's how it played out in my life. And I'm sharing that as a way of trying to help us think through what could this look like in our lives. And I encourage you to take some time to think through that this week. What could this look like in your life? What are the things in your life that are morally okay to do, but actually get in the way of you loving the people around you? How is Jesus inviting you today to lay down your rights for the sake of loving and serving others? And again, I know it's uncomfortable to live this way, especially when we first try to do it because everything in us screams for us to stand up and fight for our rights. We're afraid that if we don't stand up for our rights, someone else is gonna come in, take them away. We're gonna lose them. What are we opening ourselves up to if we live this way? It's a change from the way that we're used to living. And if you try living this way, it's gonna be difficult. Like I'm just warning you up front, it's gonna be difficult. But when it's difficult, realize it's, that's normal. Don't get discouraged, don't give up. Those are normal growing pains. And the fact that it is so hard to live this way is part of the reason that God gave us the church. Because he gave us a family of people around us that when we're struggling to live this way, when we're struggling to live the way Jesus calls us to live, we can call one another up and say, I'm struggling today. And someone else can say, I know it's hard, but, but I'm in this with you. You're not alone. And we can support one another. When, when we lay down our rights and someone just takes advantage of us, we have others who are willing to lay down their rights to love and serve us. We don't need to fight for ourselves because we have a family that'll fight for us and we have a God who will fight for us. Church, Jesus saves us fully and freely by grace as a gift. The only thing we need to do to be saved is trust in him. There's nothing we need to do to add to that. But when Jesus calls us, he, when he saves us, he calls for us to see the world differently. He doesn't give us freedom so we can be comfortable and cozy. He gives it to us so we can lay down our rights, so we can sacrifice our desires, and so we can love others. And as we do that, he's going to work through us to continue to spread this good news about Jesus to the world that needs so desperately to hear about him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how amazing you are. Thank you for the amazing gift that you've given us of free, full salvation in Jesus alone. Thank you that we don't need to do anything to add to that, to supplement it, to make it better, that is perfect as it is. And God, I pray that you forgive us for the times that we have used that as an excuse for failing to love others. God, I pray that you would make us a people who are willing and not just willing, but excited to lay down our rights for the sake of serving others and showing them your goodness. God, help us to follow you and trust you each day. In Jesus' name, amen.